The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. The title of the message today is, Are You the King? And the text is a bit long. It's probably one of the biggest chunks of text that uh, we're doing for the entire series of Luke, starting in chapter 22, verse 63, and then going all the way into chapter 20, uh, 23, verse 25. And so it's, uh, we want to look at the entire trial of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And normally we would do the scripture reading, but instead what I decided to do is just to incorporate the text throughout the message rather than having one long reading at the beginning. And so that's what we'll do um, this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we look at the trial of your son and reflect on the circumstances under which he went to the cross, um, the deep injustices that were done against him and uh, everything that he suffered even prior to that crucifixion. We pray that our eyes will be open to understand the meaning of all this and the significance that it has for our own faith and our walk with you. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, just to bring some context here to what we're going to be looking at today. Last week, we looked at the arrest of Jesus. While Jesus was praying with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, we know that his, his disciples fell asleep on him while they were praying together. And so while Jesus was calling them to stay alert and urging them to be on their guard, it, we're told that in the midst of that conversation that this whole band of people shows up led by one of his own disciples, Judas. And he's escorted by these religious leaders of Israel, these elders and these scribes. And they're also accompanied by this detachment of Roman soldiers with them. And Jesus offers no resistance to his arrest and even, in fact, rebukes Peter for drawing his sword and trying to fight back. And Jesus is taken to the high priest's house for what basically in our modern times we would call sort of pre-trial questioning before the formal trial begins. And while that drama is going on inside the high priest's house, last week we looked at what was happening in the courtyard outside where there was a bonfire. And all the disciples abandoned Jesus except for Peter, who follows this mob at a distance and is hiding his identity hoping not to be discovered as one of Jesus' disciples. There in the courtyard, his cover is blown. And three times, he's confronted by three different people who say, I swear you are one of his disciples. And each time, Peter denies Jesus and says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the guy. Well, that was the drama that was happening outside. In today's message, we want to go inside the high priest's house and find out what unfolded there. And so as we start in chapter 22, verse 63, the formal trial has not even begun yet, but the torture begins from the very start. In verse 63, it says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So you can imagine the terror of that experience of being blindfolded and having soldiers surrounding you and literally randomly just punching you all over your body, your face, maybe hitting you with sticks and teasing you, 
saying, if you're a prophet like you claim you are, then tell us, who is it that struck you? Prophesy when the next blow is going to come. It's interesting that Luke uses a very technical word for what they did to Jesus. It says that they blasphemed him. Why that's important is because you can mock anyone, but you can only blaspheme God. Luke is making it very clear that whatever doubt or confusion there, have been, there has been up to this point about Christ's identity, he wants his readers to be absolutely certain Jesus is God. Jesus is God. They were blaspheming him. It goes on in verses 66 to 69. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. This detail about it being day was important to the Jews because according to Jewish law, a trial cannot take place at night. And so as soon as daybreak comes, they gather what Luke refers to as this assembly of the elders, which was also known as the Sanhedrin. This was the highest governing body in Israel. And they cut to the chase and they say, if you are the Christ, tell us, tell us. That term Christ, a lot of times people think that Christ was Jesus' last name, you know, just like Joe Smith, Jesus Christ, and you know, But I think most of you who have grown up in the church know that that's not true. Christ was not part of Jesus' name. It was a title, literally meaning anointed one. It's the same in the Jewish as what we would say Messiah, right? So they're saying, are you the Messiah? But he said to them, as the verse goes on, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. In other words, Jesus refuses to answer whether or not he's the Messiah because he says, I know what this court is all about. You are not interested in the truth. You're only trying to trap me with my words, so I'm not going to honor that with a, with a response. And he says, if I were you to even ask you the same question, who am I, I know you wouldn't answer me back because your hearts are already hardened and you've made up your mind about me. And then he goes on and says something surprising, though, offering up exactly what these religious leaders wanted on a silver platter. Because right after this, he says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, Son of Man was Christ's favorite title for himself. And it pointed back to the prophecy of Daniel about this person that was going to come at a later time. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, this is what the actual prophecy says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, when Jesus connects himself with this figure in Daniel's prophecy, he was claiming rule over an eternal kingdom that would go beyond Israel but would encompass the entire world. Now these religious leaders knew their Bible well enough to know that that reference of son of man in Daniel was a claim to deity. And so in verse 70, the elders say this to him. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, 
you say that I am. In other words, by calling yourself the Son of Man, you are basically saying you are the Son of God, aren't you? And once again, it looks like Jesus is being evasive. He says, well, that's what you say, not me. (laughs) But I think it's because there's actually two trials going on here. They think they're putting Jesus on trial, but Jesus is basically putting them on trial. Those are your words, not mine. And by them, you shall be judged. In verse 71, it says, Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They, they, knowing the Old Testament, says, This is all we need. This is all the proof that we could ever want. He is claiming deity here. He is claiming to be God. As far, as far as the Sanhedrin are concerned, the case is over. Jesus has sealed his own fate. He has committed blasphemy by claiming to be none other than God. But there's just one problem. They want Jesus dead. But only the Romans can impose capital punishment at that time. And so in chapter 23 of verse 1, it says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. John's gospel makes this point more explicit when he says in John chapter 18, verse 31 to 32, Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Talking to the Jewish religious leaders. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate looks like this is not a Roman matter. This is a Jewish matter. We don't care about this stuff. This is a spiritual matter. Deal with it in your spiritual courts. And they come to the point and say, you know what, though? We don't have the right to execute anyone. And we want this guy dead. So we need your help. There's also a second problem, though. The Romans didn't think that blasphemy was even a crime, let alone capital punishment, offense. Blasphemy didn't enter into the Roman law. And so they accused Jesus of something that they know the Romans can't ignore, rebellion against Caesar's authority. In verse 2 of chapter 23, it says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And in verse 3 it says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Now here's the thing. If you look at the historical record outside of even the Bible itself, like in the writings of Josephus, it shows that this guy Pilate was capable of incredible cruelty and brutality, especially to anyone who dared question Rome's authority. He butchered people, left and right, who questioned Caesar. But even this wicked guy, Pilate, could see through these religious leaders and the game that they were playing. So in verse 4 to 5, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. And then in verses 6 to 7, it says, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So this idea of him preaching in Galilee piques Pilate's interest. Is this guy a Galilean? And he figures out a way to deflect this whole case, and he punts the whole thing over to Herod. 
and say, Herod is in charge of Galilee. Let him deal with it. Now, this is not the same Herod that was alive and ruling when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great. This Herod is the son of that Herod the Great, also known as Herod Antipas. This guy Herod was an interesting character. It's interesting that because of his wickedness, uh, in Luke 13, Jesus refers to him as the fox, you know, says Herod, that fox. Not because he was good looking, okay, but for another reason, okay? Um, He ended up marrying Herodias, who was his brother Philip's wife. So he basically stole his brother's wife from him and ended up marrying him or marrying her. Uh, John the Baptist, as you may know, criticizes Herod for doing this. He says, this is not right what you've done, marrying your brother's wife. And as you know the story, uh, he gets beheaded because of this. But what's interesting is before Herod beheads John the Baptist, there's this interesting passage in Mark chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, and it says, So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. This is interesting, isn't it? Herod used to like going over to the prison and sitting with John and hearing him talk about the gospel. And he, didn't, he wasn't able to make sense of what John the Baptist was saying. It, it's, it confused him, but there was enough there that it seemed to intrigue him and draw him in and stoke his curiosity about this Jesus. As far as we can tell, though, um, Herod, despite all of his curiosity, never actually became a believer. Uh, Verse 8 to 9 of Luke 23 says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So given this unexpected opportunity to question Jesus, Herod actually becomes excited because he has heard these stories of Jesus, this miracle worker. And what he's hoping for is that Jesus would do a miracle in front of him, like he's done all over Israel. It's interesting that Jesus responds to the questioning of the Sanhedrin, and he responds to the questioning of Pilate, but when it comes to Herod, he refuses to honor Herod with a single word. He just shuts down and doesn't even talk to him. He basically says, I will not even dignify you with an answer. Whatever possible curiosity of spiritual matters might have existed in Herod's heart when John the Baptist was still alive, it's clear that by this point, it's completely gone. Um, In Luke 23, verse 10 through 12, it says, The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. All he's seeing Jesus is as a moment of entertainment, to have some fun, but Jesus won't play along. He's not going to perform any miracles. So he says, you won't give me what I want, then I can find my fun in another way. And he basically dresses Jesus in royal clothing and begins mocking him. But what's interesting is, 
not even Herod can find anything wrong to kill Jesus over. So he says, I don't know what to do with this guy. And he just sends him back to Pilate and says, you figure out what to do with this messy case. In verses 13 to 16, it says this, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. You could see at this point, Pilate is fed up with this whole case of Jesus. And he says, I don't find anything in this. There's no meat, there's no substance to this charge you've brought against him. So let me just give him a, a few whips, you know, and send him on his way, and we'll, it's a win-win situation for all of us. Jesus has definitely not done anything worthy of crucifixion. Verse 18 to 19, it goes on, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. It was a tradition in those days at the Passover celebration for the Roman government to release one prisoner of the Jews' choosing as an act of goodwill toward the people that they ruled over. And so Pilate thinks this is his way out of this whole mess. He says, I bring before you two prisoners, this preacher man, Jesus, and this murderer, Barabbas. This ought to be an easy one. Who do you want me to release? And Pilate cannot believe what he's witnessing as the crowd begins to shout, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us the murderer. Give us Barabbas and kill the preacher. Commenting on the absurdity of the events that were unfolding, David Gooding writes, the situation was beginning to become crazy. Here were priests demanding the execution of Jesus on the ground that he was attempting to overthrow the political authorities, yet these very priests would not themselves bow to the political authorities. And what is more, they were calling for the release of a known political activist who in a recent civil disturbance in the city had committed murder, okay? Do you understand what Gooding is saying? The whole case against Jesus' insurrection and yet here is an example of a man <laughs> that has committed a far more heinous example of insurrection. And yet the whole lie is exposed when they ask for the release of the murderer instead of the preacher. Verse 20 to 22. It says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. It's surprising how intent Pilate is in trying to set Jesus free, isn't it? I don't think it's because of his sense of justice or compassion for Jesus. I think more likely it's what had happened between him and his wife. A little earlier. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, it says, While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I suffered a great deal today 
in a dream because of him. That seems to be what instigated Pilate's desire to release Jesus. In verse 23 to 25, though, it says, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had, been th- who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. John's gospel actually fills in some details that reveal that despite Pilate's protest, Jesus never even had really a fighting chance for life. John chapter 19, verse 12 says this. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leadership kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. You see, the Jewish leaders knew exactly how to hit Pilate, where he would feel the most threatened. Question Pilate's loyalty to Caesar. It's interesting that all the way up until recently, there were actually a lot of scholars that questioned whether Pontius Pilate was an actual historical figure. People think that he was just created as a fictional person for the story of the crucifixion by Christians. And then something interesting happened. In 1961, archaeologists were digging in Palestine when they uncovered this huge stone with a carving on it from the first century, clearly dated to the first century. It was a piece out of a temple that was built. And on it was inscribed these words, to the divine Augustus Tiberius, Pontius Pilate has dedicated this. It seems like this stone was part of a temple that Pilate built in honor of Caesar, Tiberius. You see, Pilate was a man with political ambitions. And he built this temple to send a clear message back to Tiberius in Rome. Don't forget me out here in these backwoods of Palestine. I don't want to end my career here in this nowhere land. So this thinly veiled threat by the Jewish leaders would have terrified Pilate. If you let this man walk free who claims to be a king, we'll make sure Rome hears about what you've done. And so in this total miscarriage of justice, despite being found innocent by both Herod and Pilate, Jesus was sentenced to death because, as Luke says, the will of the people, the will of the people. Now that is the story of the trial of Jesus in a nutshell. Let me just draw out two lessons from it, and then we'll wrap things up. I want to first begin by asking you, how does all of this make you feel when you think about the trial of Jesus? From the moment he's blindfolded and beaten before a verdict is even given to the point where despite the fact that he is found innocent, he's sentenced to death. Does it get your blood boiling? Is there a side in which you wish that Jesus would have prevailed and that he would have been set free? Because here's the problem is if you wished that, there would be no salvation for you and I. The first lesson for us in this trial is this, that Jesus, as an innocent man, endured all of this injustice because we need a Savior. We need a Savior. As horrible as these events were, 
The truth is it's hard to know how to feel about them, isn't it? Because we needed this injustice to happen for our sakes. Why in the world did the crowd choose Barabbas over Jesus that day? Why didn't Pilate have the backbone to stand up to these Jewish leaders when history records demonstrate that he clearly had terrifying strength when he wanted it? Why did Jesus offer such a weak defense for his own trial? Why didn't he use his eloquence to defend himself more ably? Why? Because Jesus needed to go to the cross in order to die for our sins. Philip Ryken shares about this story long ago when he attended this uh, Easter service where they put on this play dramatizing the life of Christ. And when it got to the part in the play for his trial, the cast members of the play very quietly and secretly snuck into the audience and interspersed themselves among the people who were watching it. And when it came to that moment when Pilate turned to the crowd, asking who they wanted released, all of a sudden, all these actors stood up among the audience and they began shouting for Jesus to be crucified. Crucify him, crucify him, they began to shout louder and louder and it freaked out all the people in the audience because they were like, who's saying this, you know? Um, Commenting on that experience, Riken writes, since they were standing out in the audience, it seemed that we ourselves were part of the crowd that wanted to kill Jesus. For a moment, I almost forgot that this was a drama. My first instinct was to grab the nearest actor and make him sit down and be quiet. I had no intention of being implicated in this injustice. But upon further reflection, I realized that I needed Jesus to do what he was about to do or else be lost forever. God, help me. If there is any hope for my sins to be forgiven, it is only through the cross. So I had to join the crowd not in cruel hatred, but out of desperate necessity. Not because I am for injustice, but because I need Christ to go to the cross. Crucify him, I said in my heart. Yes, crucify him, if he will be crucified, because I am a sinner who needs a Savior. As horrible as the events were that led to Jesus' death, we needed them to happen so that Jesus could die for our sin. Isaiah 53, 3-5 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their face. He was despised, and we held him in in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see what the prophet Isaiah is saying? In those final moments on earth, Jesus looks like such a tragic and pathetic figure. But everything he endured was for our sake. He took our place, 
so we wouldn't have to experience it ourselves. The second lesson in this trial of Jesus that I want to point to is this. Not only do we need a Savior, but we need a King. We need a King. Months before Jesus would go to the cross, he told a story to his disciples of his own interpretation of the events that were going to take place at his trial. And this is how he explains it in Luke 19, verse 12 to 14. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. That was Jesus' summary of what would happen to him on his trial. Israel rejected her true king. This is how Jesus defines the battle lines. It is the struggle of every human heart to surrender to the kingship and authority of Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus sees it. In John chapter 19, verse 15, it says, They cried out, Away from him, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. This was the ultimate blasphemy. We have no king but Caesar. The truth is they had no desire to submit to Caesar. What they were really was saying was, we have no king but ourselves. What I find interesting in this whole trial narrative is there's this consistent, dismissive tone of contempt directed toward Jesus that runs throughout the trial. The soldiers blindfolding and beating him and asking him to prophesy. If you were a prophet, tell us who hit you. Herod dressing up Jesus like a king in his own garments and mocking him. I think even Pilate, who seems to be at least the most sympathetic to his cause, really sizing up Jesus and being absolutely convinced that there's no way this uneducated carpenter poses any threat to Rome, you know? He looked at this guy's a lightweight. He's a nobody. Are you kidding me? This guy's going to start an insurrection? He's not even worth my time. I think the truth is Jesus' idealism and purity must have seemed so quaint and harmless to everyone that was there at that time, like a child among grown-ups caught up in all of their political maneuverings. John chapter 18, verse 37 to 38 says this. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. What is truth? That's the statement of a jaded and cynical person, isn't it? Don't be so naive, Jesus. Do you really think truth matters in the adult world? Do you even know how the world works? You're such an idealist, such a romantic talking about purity and truth and God. These things don't exist. All there is is power and strength. All there is is might. I think that was the ultimate battle that Jesus was facing. 
Unless God breaks our pride, the truth is all of us start from this place of dismissive contempt toward him. All that turn-the-other-cheek garbage and blessed are the poor, stuff that looks great on inspirational posters and calendars, right? But is there any real true relevance to any of that stuff in my life? I've got real problems that need real solutions. My finances, my marriage, my career. How does Jesus help with any of that stuff? It's interesting, Dallas Willard asked this thought-provoking question to Christians as well as to non-Christians. And he asked this simply, do you think that Jesus was a smart man? (laughs) Not was he a righteous man, not was he a godly man. Was Jesus a smart man? In fact, do you think he was one of the smartest men who ever lived on this earth? And he speaks of the way that we typically think of Jesus, and he says this. Far too often, speaking of Jesus, he is regarded as hardly conscious. He is taken as a mere icon, a wraith-like semblance of a man living on the margins of, quote, the real life where you and I must dwell. He is perhaps fit for the role of sacrificial lamb or alienated social critic, but little more. But can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be what Christians take him to be in other respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all? the smartest person who ever lived, bringing us the best information on the most important subjects. What lies at the heart of the astonishing disregard of Jesus found in the moment-to-moment existence of multitudes of professing Christians is a simple lack of respect for him. He is not seriously taken to be a person of great ability. But how then can we admire him? And what can devotion or worship mean if simple respect is not included in it. Now, I'm guessing some of you are kind of disoriented by what the argument is here. But what I'm simply saying is, do you believe that Jesus is so wise, so intelligent, so capable that he is worthy of your total respect and complete surrender? In other words, in your own heart, is he worthy to be followed? Worthy to be your king? Because the truth is, on that day of his trial, I think every person that stood before him thought they were smarter than him. Pilate would fade into history, remembered only for his involvement in the trial of Jesus. The Roman Empire is no more, and it hasn't been around for centuries. Herod and his family dynasty have faded into obscurity. The high priesthood of Israel as well as the temple in Jerusalem, are all gone, long gone. But here's the thing. The kingdom that Christ built through his death and resurrection have grown to cover the entire world with millions of followers who bow their knee before him as king. You couldn't tell that by the trial, could you? Like Jesus was the biggest loser of them all. It looked like Pilate and Herod And the Jewish leaders were the ones that controlled everything. But Jesus says, I am king, 
and you guys will fade into history, into oblivion. And that's exactly what happened after that trial. There's this old song that I really love a lot by Michael Card called God's Own Fool. And I want to look at the lyrics as I close out this message and think about the challenge that it offers us in our cynicism and in our being too smart for God attitudes that we often bear in our lives. Michael Card writes this, Seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad, and the priests said a demon's to blame. But God, in the form of this angry young man, could not have seemed perfectly sane. When we, in our foolishness, thought we were wise, he played the fool, and he opened our eyes. When we, in our weakness, believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the fool can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream. And you'll have the faith his first followers had and you'll feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger to say you must know Have the courage to say, I believe, for the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. Let's pray.